It's the Idea Fountain and I'm Julie Pilot. We have been working on some really exciting things. Please make sure you're signed up for our newsletter at juliepilot.co. That's J-U-L-I-E-P-I-L-A-T.co and you'll be the first to know. I really appreciate you listening and keeping in touch. I have the most extraordinary talented friends, one of which Nabil Ayers recently released his memoir, my Life in the Sunshine. I highly recommend it for anyone, whether you're connected to music or just want an incredible story about self-discovery and finding family. Let's get into it with Nabil. I-E-E-A-F-O-U-N-E-A-I-N. This is the Idea Fountain, life-changing conversations. when we first met. Oh, man, It may me have too. been at KGRG. Probably, right? I mean, I think my guess is that it was in when I was in the band Micro Mini. But oh, I don't, I I don't know. Micro Mini didn't even make the book, did they? No, I feel bad about that. <laughs> Wait a minute. I, I wrote a lot of it, but it just, the, the sort of the three bands that did make the book were The Lemons, to, which to me is like my first real band and lots of stories, and then Alien Crime Syndicate kind of represented the foray into the business part because I put out our record but then also sold it to V2 and started my own label and then the Long Winters is like my sort of more chill successful indie rock band and weirdly Micro Mini just didn't have its own like role in it like well, it felt like I was just trying to stuff in too many bands and as somebody who just freshly finished the book that isn't even really true that there were only three bands in the book right well, sure. <laughs> it's funny so okay I'm gonna give you an official setup Nabil okay. Ayers uh, is a good friend who I knew from Seattle. I can't say you're from Seattle, um, but you just released your new book, My Life in the Sunshine, Searching for My Father and Discovering My Family, which uh, is a memoir about one man's journey to connect with his musician father, ultimately redrawing the lines that define family and race. And, you know, this is just, I love doing a podcast because I can be really selfish and dig in on things that are uniquely and important and matter to me. And this book left me with so many questions, but I think like even to just kick off, I mean, I have so much respect now that I know, um, probably in the last five years, I mean, you referenced going to the movie theater and seeing straight out of Compton Mm -hmm. where in the beginning Dre is listening to a record and he's listening to your dad's record everybody loves the sunshine I knew the sample but I probably wasn't familiar with the legacy really before that point either. right right um but again have learned more and have so much respect but there was something deep down inside of me when you mentioned spontaneous funk whorehouse <laughs> and cherry <laughs> pop and daddies like that I lived through Right. That's the funny thing about, I mean, I've, I learned this now and, you know, I've of course read books and like you latch on to the things that have something to do with you, even if it's like, oh my God, I've totally been to that restaurant this author's talking about. Even, you know, an author you don't know, like anything that like feels a little personal is so cool. And so what's been fun is, I mean, I've done plenty of press with people I don't know and who don't have connections to things, but, but some things like this with people who have some connection to some part of this and it's so interesting and of course you're definitely the only one who's like kgrg vendetta red <laughs> sfw yeah. all those things which is 
such a, I think, a really important sort of planting the seeds part of all of it. Yeah. All of it being it, my life <laughs> and my musical life. Well, and it's so interesting. The one thing I really took away from this book and had me like just think deeply about life and question things is there's this philosophy that I love and it's that nobody is just one thing. Yeah, I, I mean, you said it really well. That's a really easy way to say it. And we spent a lot of time together in mm -hmm. the time I lived in Seattle, but I think I feel especially close to you because even as I moved out of Seattle, uh, I would see you in LA, I would see you in New York, and you always mm -hmm. reminded me of home. Right, right. And so there's that closeness, but I kind of panicked like as I was reading the first third of the book because I was like, I don't know this guy at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. I was like, how shallow are my relationships? <laughs> but th this is what's so funny. This, I mean, you're absolutely not the first person to say, say this, but I have, I mean, my, my weirdest, biggest worry when the book was coming out was not what's my father going to think, all these things that everyone's asking that could easily be bigger. My worry was that I've been so guarded about all this stuff. Whenever anyone's asked about my father or anything, I'm just like, oh, yeah, I don't know him. Anyway, what's for dinner? Like, you know, change the subject. Don't want to get into it. Cut it off. And really, really close friends, people I've known since college, my fear was that my friends are going to be mad at me and they're going to say, we've been friends for 40 years. I didn't know any of this. Mm. And that I'm going to feel bad because they feel bad because some of th this is all of what I was making up in my head. They're going to feel bad because they'll feel like they didn't ask or they didn't pay attention or they didn't allow me the space to talk about these things. I thought that a little bit, but I chalked it up that we're both such music psychopaths. There <laughs> right, was that's not all we talked about. time in the day to talk about much yeah. more. Like maybe some sports. <laughs> right. No, not no sports. We never talked about sports. Maybe we talked about, about the fact that we right. wouldn't talk about sports. You know? Right. But but really, it's it's on me in the end because the the truth is, it's absolutely me not have, never wanting to talk about it and always changing the subject, always being really guarded about it. So. I don't want anyone I know to feel bad because that's I don't. There's not a single person I can think of that I feel like, man, they never asked me about my life. I never wanted people to ask me about my life because I didn't want to talk about those things, and tons of my friends did. And so, in a weird way, this was like, of course, a great way to get it all out there. But it's not like I was sitting there saying I have to get this out. It just sort of felt like time to just talk about it in sort of a bigger scope. But it's not like. I just really wasn't thinking about it much and didn't want to think about it. And I think got old enough to finally want to think about it and explore it. And here we are. Yeah, it's funny you just said that sentence because I want to come back to it in a little bit. Selfishly, I have some other questions for you, but you just said, <laughs> I wasn't thinking about it because I didn't want to think about it. Or you said something like that. Something like that. Rewind but, the tape. Yeah. You know, I want to come back to that and bring that up when it, when we get to the part talking about racial identity, sure. right? Mm -hmm. um, but first, I mean, like chronologically going through the book, I was like keeping notes, like, oh, I want to ask him about this. And one okay. of the things that I thought was really interesting was I never had any idea that you grew up connected to the Baha'i faith. Oh. And it's. I've known a couple people, I've been Baha'i adjacent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's been a couple people I've known as an adult. I live very close to the Baha'i Center in Los Angeles. Like oh, where is it? I don't even know where it is. Uh, right by uh, Fairfax and Venice. 
Oh. Or maybe La Cienega in Venice, yeah. Uh And and so, first of all, I think 9.5 out of 10 people in my life probably don't know what the Baha'i Baha'i faith is. Yeah. How how would you sum it up? It's funny because I I don't know that much about it. I mean, it's a religion, but to me, it never felt like a religion. To me, it felt more like a sort of philosophy or a way of life that my mother and my uncle were living by. I mean, they were both raised Jewish in Long Island. And then when they were, I think my mother was probably about 20 and my uncle was 18, living in New York City in the early 70s, they... I don't want to say converted because they didn't, they never abandoned Judaism, but they just started becoming heavily involved in the Baha'i faith. And there's not, there's not a conversion process. I don't think you like sign up or join or reject anything else. You just start going to Baha'i things. And you participate. When you, yeah. Right? And when you in feel like you're a Baha'i, you're a Baha'i. So, mm-hmm. so they were Baha'is and my name comes from a Baha'i book, Nabil's narrative. Um, but so what I remember as a kid is not being raised any religion. I mean, I still went to so many Jewish things, especially when I knew my grandparents and my great-grandparents who were, you know, Russian and Jewish, second, third generation immigrants, um, you know, very stereotypically New York Jewish, all the foods, all the Yiddish, all the, the best cultural stuff. It was really fun. But then I had this Baha'i name, and we spent lots of time with Baha'is. And to me, it was always just about peace and unity and equality and all these great things. I remember prayers, but I don't remember ever like going to church or really a service. I just remember these potlucks that felt like parties, but people didn't drink. So they were really like calm, wonderful parties, lots of kids, incredible food. I remember great Persian food. Um, So it is a religion, but to me, it didn't feel like a religion because it didn't have a lot of the sort of boring negative stuff that a lot of people dislike about religion yeah so it's interesting like you said it's not like you have to go get baptized or convert and you talked in the book about growing up in this community in New York and then you moved to Utah and it Mm -hmm. wasn't available there but later in your life you made sort of a pilgrimage to the Baha'i Center in Chicago yeah um so it it mattered to you. I'm wondering if that's kind of where that sense of community really started for you. It might it might have been. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I, I was around it so much as a kid during really important years, and so many of those people were musicians too, so to me it was really connected to music. Um, and when I did the, the pilgrimage, as you say, when I was in my mid-30s, I think the time, I don't know, later than that, mid-40s? I don't know when it was. <laughs> later in life. But the time was so perfect because I... I've always felt connected to the Baha'i faith. And, you know, if I see something, I don't go to Baha'i events, but if something pops up, it's always interesting. And I'm always sort of proudly connected, even if just internally. And I've always wanted to go to the the temple in, it's just outside of Chicago. It's like half an hour away, just because it's supposed to be incredible. And I go to Chicago a lot for work. And finally on one trip, I was like, I think I'm going to go there. I just, you know, sounds fun. So I made time. And I was just surprised, you know, 40 years after my last Baha'i event, how much it sort of shook me and how really important and magnificent it felt. Not at all like an intimidate, I guess it was a little intimidating because it's such a like huge, beautiful place, but not like a scary way, more like, again, like a connective way, like, oh, weird, I haven't been around any of this in so long, but I totally feel like I'm part of it and like it's part of me and here's you know, way more words and names and pictures and things that I recognize from my childhood. And here's 
a huge row of copies of this book that I'd only ever seen on our bookshelf, the book that I'm named after, and there's like, you know, 20 of them on a shelf, which is just so crazy to look at. And it was also at a time in my life when I was finally, I tried to connect with my father, who's, who's not Baha'i, but it's connected to all this, um, and was kind of rejected by him and was feeling like that was the only sort of weird, negative, missing thing in my life. Not, not that he wasn't there, but that it just felt unfinished. And that it was right there at that the Baha'i Temple when I left. I was like, I think I need to figure out more. I need to do 23andMe. I, I need to like go around him and learn more about my family and learn more about myself. He's not going to help. So now's the moment when I'm deciding to do it without him. Like that, a lot happened in like a half an hour that morning. That's incredible. Well, I recommend uh, the Baha'i Center in Los Angeles. I, I mean, it's so incredible. They've opened their doors. Um, the mentoring program I do, youth mentoring, they would mm -hmm. have all the hoodlums <laughs> use the Baha'i Center. Uh, That's great. We did that for a lot of years. It was awesome. So cool. Um, and then also adjacent to religion and adjacent to the idea of nobody is just one thing. I was really fascinated by the story of you moving to Utah. Oh, yeah. Um, and also on the topic of people connecting with different things it's funny one thing there's no way you would know about me is when i was growing up my dad worked for western airlines oh whoa well i think i, I mentioned western in you the book it, right yeah i got a shout out in the yep, book yep. <laughs> and then they got um acquired by delta airlines mm -hmm. and he actually had to move to salt lake city for a while and commute home Wow. So I spent a lot of time in Salt Lake City, too, and I really always loved it. I never uh -huh. lived there, but I loved the people, and I loved the energy of the city, and it was a beautiful place. And yeah. what I thought was fascinating in the book was I think that we're in such a siloed state, and you know, we think the left versus the right, and we right. have our opinions about the flyover states. But um, you know, when you had like a uh, biracial background and you were moving to Utah, <laughs> if you were to say, how's this story gonna end? Right. You know, as a punk rocker moving from New York, you it would be easy to think your life was over, but you had a right. really great experience. Yeah, on, on so many levels. I mean, the thing, I remember being worried about a bunch of things, of course, about my race. I mean, yeah, black father, white mother, never knew my father, I was always with my mother. She was moving there because she worked for American Express. And so, of course, I was like, am I going to be the, literally the only non-white person? I mean, this is way before the internet. This is like when you just like Donnie and Marie were on TV and we knew about Mormons and, you know, we didn't know much else. And but weirdly, more than that, when I was 10 years old, what I was worried about was music because I was already so into music. I already played drums. I lived in New York City. I went to concerts. I knew tons of musicians through my uncle. And I was I thought like, wow, that's that's definitely over. Like Salt Lake City, there's not going to be any of this. And amazingly, it was so much better there. Not Certainly not better than New York, but I mean, for a kid, I had so much more access, meaning MTV started right then. That didn't exist in, in New York only because it didn't exist yet. So that I associate that with the move to Salt Lake. So suddenly I got turned on to so much music and every band played there because maybe because it was geographically the only thing between Denver and Seattle or Denver and LA. So, I mean, from like huge arena shows, whatever, Def Leppard, I saw the police, I saw Bow Wow Wow on my last day of sixth grade at the University of Utah. I mean, there's so many shows that aren't included in the book. And 
beyond that, I mean, you know, you didn't have to buy tickets in advance. Most shows didn't sell out. It was cheap. It was easy to go. And my mother was incredible about getting us backstage all the time because no one was really trying. So we would just show up and she would just be like, hey, my son's a drummer. He wants to meet you. And we met, I remember meeting like Eric Carr, the drummer from Kiss, and like hanging out in the lobby and meeting Mike Reno, the singer and lover boy. I mean, this all sounds cheesy, but like an 11-year-old kid in Salt Lake who like watches these people on MTV and then just goes and hangs out with them in a hotel lobby in Utah. It was really crazy and great. And then, of course, once I was in high school, I mean, every punk band played there, and I saw Jane's Addiction and Fishbone and Living Color, all those bands and like teeny clubs. It was really so much better than it should have been. It was great. It's funny, you're the only person I can ask this. I don't know who else would appreciate it, but I've always loved that movie, SLC Punk. Yeah. And was it really like that? Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I wasn't like punk punk. I was afraid of, of that stuff. So I wasn't going to the Black Flag and the Dead Kennedy shows. I went to Descendants shows, but I was, I was really just like, I'm going to get beat up. I'm kind of a preppy kid who likes that music, but like cannot just show up there. And I think I was wrong. I wish I had. There are plenty of record store nerds and the punk shows I did go to were just like, everybody went but um but yeah that movie is about people that were like a few years older than me and all the places the indian center yeah everything in it is kind of real that's awesome that yeah. it's so edgy and i thought it was really interesting too how you mentioned you felt more accepted in utah than you went when you went back home to new york in the summer yeah that was the weird thing is it was you know it was so white that this is a weird thing I've kind of invented in my head, but I think it's true, but I think there wasn't, there, there weren't that many stereotypes because there weren't, you know, there weren't evil black gangs or that there weren't the things that certainly existed on TV and existed in big cities, but in Salt Lake, it just wasn't there. So I think people had their guard down more and were more opening, open, or maybe it was, I mean, it was about 60% Mormon then, and I had friends who were Mormon and friends who weren't Mormon. Like that was not at all a dividing line between like anything, at least where I was. And again, I was in Salt Lake, right by the University of Utah, like, you know, the most liberal block of the state. It's certainly a red state outside of Salt Lake, but Salt Lake itself has always been kind of cool, always democratic, openly gay mayor recently. Like, it's always much better than people actually think. Um, and it was then, and I really loved it. I mean, the, the only the sort of downside was that that was the first time I'd ever lived anywhere or experienced, you know, kids being like wanting to touch my afro or asking me if I was poor, or asking me if I was adopted, all those kind of things. Like not overt mean racism, but still just like stuff that was like, well, this sucks. Why do I have to get asked these questions? No one else is getting asked. Yeah, being yeah. different. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it was, it was really interesting, um, as you talked about the Pacific Northwest, I'm not going to just say, uh, Seattle cause your journey started in Tacoma. Right. And, uh, if you have a 206 cell phone, you know what a radical <laughs> difference that is. Um, but first of all, I just have to say, thank you. It meant so much. You really did give a thoughtful quality shout out to KGRG. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank uh, you for that. I mean, it was an incredible station for so long. It, it's funny because, um, you know, I've been really nostalgic about KGRG recently because um, I just did an episode of the Idea Fountain on KGRG because oh, wow. this man who was like the godfather, his name was John Shear, he hosted a show called The Alternative Past. You're right. shaking your head. Mm -hmm. He's the I, didn't, I didn't realize he was involved with KGRG, though. I never knew this. Oh, for sure. I mean, oh. he was like, when I was 
was 14 years old and my dad took me up to the radio station because I grew up in Kent and we like knocked on the door to see if I could sign up for the summer class and be a DJ. He was like the station manager and the first person to welcome me in. I mean, he was over 10 years older than me, Mm -hmm. so we never had a peer relationship, but he was so uh, religious about the music. Yeah. And about the identity of the station and what it stood for, that anybody that came through there, he really had an impact on their life. Yeah. So many people that grew up in the surrounding area. You know, it's funny, the slogan for KGRG used to be from Everett to Olympia and all places in between. Uh-huh. Um, because they would simulcast on other college stations. Oh. Yeah, it had a really far reach. And, um, you know, even his show, like, really impacted people. And it's funny with the nostalgia and thinking back of that time in my life, you know, it feels like in what is probably condensed for 10 years, mm-hmm. there were three eras of the music scene in Seattle. And I want to see if this lands for you. Mm-hmm. For me, it was pre-grunge explosion. Mm-hmm. Which is and like what years? Well, see, I'm not sure, but I'll tell you what was happening. So this is when I started at KGRG, and I'll tell you exactly what happened. And I think this is when you were in Spontaneous Fun Core House and maybe (laughs) Yeah. The day, maybe the first time I had a shift, I walked into KGRG, and there was a newspaper article taped to the board in the studio, and it was the news that Mia Zapata had gotten murdered. Oh, wow, okay. So like, this and was like 92 think, or 93? 93. And I yeah. think the single soundtrack had just come out. <laughs> okay. And so that's era one. In fact, I was this little munchkin and I knew the movie Singles was about mm-hmm. Seattle. Right. And I'll never forget, <laughs> I played Smashing Pumpkins Drown. And as like a 14-year-old kid, I said, it's another Seattle band off the single soundtrack. <laughs> totally. I, I remember being in a record store when I was an intern at Polygram at like a mall record store, the warehouse or whatever, and seeing like a local music rack. And it had the Smashing Pumpkins album on it. And I was like, because oh, it was on singles and all. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I practically got death threats at KGRG. Yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and then there was the like seattle is on fire era right mm-hmm. which is i think like a little crossover lemons uh that's probably micro mini right, right. Where everybody uh-huh. was just swooping in and yeah. signing everybody mm-hmm. and then there's the you know post seattle is on fire people are now getting dropped from all the labels <laughs> and that's where like vendetta red kind of comes in but it really was almost right. 10 years but you yeah. Check all three of the boxes. What was it like for you? How did you feel being a musician in those times? Because I don't think I really know anybody else that like crossed the entire spectrum. You know, right. like I, when I think of like even Kathy Faulkner, right? Yeah, yeah. Who, like great mentor of mine, KSW host. She was maybe in one and two, but by right, me, right. She was like I'm out of here. Right, she wasn't involved with like Death Cab or Modest Mouse. (laughs) Maybe even Marco was more two and three. Right, wow, how weird. I don't feel like there's that many, I mean, aside from Carrie Hara, right? There's not many people. (laughs) I haven't heard from her in years. I did a thing on KUOW a couple weeks ago and she texted me out of the blue. She's like, you sound great on KUOW. (laughs) Yes, she's a legend. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's funny. I've never thought about it that way. I mean, I 
So I was in college 89 to 93 in Tacoma, which of course was an incredible time. I mean, that was like, yeah. and wh what was most fun for me was like, I mean, I was a DJ at KUPS, which, you know, I wish was like KGRG, but like, not only did no one listen and the signal was so weak, but like, it just didn't really, it just didn't have a vibe. I mean, it was fun. I loved to go there and play music. And we really just used it for like, my friend and I would just like read CMJ and listen, like, it's just where we learned about stuff. That's how we viewed yeah. it. But, but it wasn't a rate. I mean, KGRG really hit people. That's what was cool about it. It was crazy. So, um, but I did, you know, I was an intern at a record company, did lots of things. But what was fun for me about college in that time, I guess during that first wave is, and especially, I mean, pre-91, was I was just a fan. I didn't, ha there are no guest lists. I didn't know anybody. I was buying tickets to shows and if the show was sold out, I didn't go. And I was buying records in stores and I was lining up at midnight to buy Nevermind at Tower Records by the Tacoma Mall, like all, you know, in every way. I was just a kid who was into that stuff. And then played in SFW, let's call them that, it's easier. <laughs> and that, that became like, Certainly never got big, but it was huge on KGRG. And we had the number one yeah. song of the year one year, whatever that was, <laughs> 93. And I'm, I'm pretty sure you played a benefit show. Yeah, of course. I mean, it was crazy. to have, We were seriously just like a college, like, funk frat band who kind of wanted to be like Mr. Bungle or Primus or whatever and, yeah. like, played at our college and then got all that KGRG airplay. Definitely played there. Like, we, I mean, we played Rock Candy once, which was crazy, because that, I mean, that was like in singles. That was like, not yeah. only a club, it was like the, the most famous club. But I never felt like connected to the Seattle stuff. Always tried to get an internship at Sub Pop and like knew who those guys were. I would be at like an Afghan Wigs show at the off-ramp and see Bruce Pavitt and be like, that's the Sub Pop guy. I know who that is. Like they were, they did a good job of making themselves as famous, you know, as any of the bands. But, uh, so that was, I guess, the first wave. And then the, the things changed for me when I graduated from college, moved to West Seattle, and got a job at Easy Street Record Store there, which is still there. And, uh, and that started, I, that was probably 94 when I started working there. And that, that was like, I guess, the Marco wave. That was like, things are blowing up. Everyone's getting signed. Nerva, or Soundgarden and Pearl Jam are still the biggest bands in the world. Like, that was just like the peak, you know, the Bush album, I remember that coming yeah. out, and like Portishead and Elastica, like all these, Oasis, Radiohead, like Lala all those things. <laughs> right, it was all happening. And that was so fun, because now I worked at a record store in Seattle, and that store and Seattle were so important, because, and, and I, I understood all this at the time, but it was like, if you could get a song on the end, and then sell more records each week, the label could get it on more stations around the country, and, and Marco and the end would start a lot of that stuff, so even though we were selling maybe five copies of something one week and maybe 10 the next week, that was seriously like the most important five or 10 copies in the country because that's how labels took it to the next level. So we were like really this crazy epicenter where we got so much attention. I could go to any show I want. I went to every party, every dinner, met every band, like, you know, a lot like being in radio. And I was just like a clerk at a record store for $8 an hour. So suddenly I was way more on the inside. And I was also like, interested in all the business stuff and really paying attention to it so that's that's kind of where that happened and then the third wave w probably would have like almost started exactly when jason who worked at easy street with me he and i opened sonic boom in 1997 25 years ago <laughs> this okay I, I have easy street and sonic boom questions for you yeah but i mean i have a couple other questions to you first and this is pure selfishness one <laughs> 
Do you ever feel disoriented because there were bands that were like as important as the biggest bands in the world in Seattle that other people just don't know? All the time. I think about them all the time. Uh, do you know how much I listened to the Truly album that came out on Capitol, that Fast Stories from Kid Coma? I have it. It's right here on vinyl. It's not even on, it's, it's not on DSPs. It's not on Spotify. It's not, there are, it's, there are so many of those. Green Apple Quickstep, which, oh, you know, I love Green Apple that Quickstep. first, that Come first on. album you can't listen to. I loved that album. I love seeing them. Like there are so many things that just like, but that's what's so funny. There were actually like a couple hundred of those bands that yeah. got Goodness, signed that, ha that like had a have shot. A place in my heart forever. Yeah. Yep. Um, and is, am I crazy or is the first Alien Crime Syndicate not on streaming? Because I went back, like, I don't think Smooth Criminal's on streaming. I didn't see it. Oh, wait, that's Alien Ant Farm. Oh, that's what it was. <laughs> there we go. This happens all the time. That's got to be on streaming, though. But that's different band. But there might be one ACS album that's not, that's not, that we don't own, but that has some, like, crossover with songs. I think I think there might be one that's not there. Yeah. I was trying to go back to the classics and I, the yeah. And of course, it might be like when you regain control of Masters or something. Right. It looked like two thousand, but it felt like the band was before that. Right. Yeah. ACS was like I think our first album was ninety eight. But yeah, lots of. The, I mean, the only reason the Lemons album that's on Mercury is up is that I happen to have a friend. This is like five years ago. A friend who worked at the catalog department at Universal who owns that record, and I was like, hey. Is there any way to get this up? And he's like, if you can send me a copy of the CD, I can get it up. <laughs> so I ordered a copy of the CD from Amazon for like 246 or something like that and had it sent to my friend at Universal. And you can tell the, the cover is like a bad scan of that CD. These are yeah. the people who own the masters. <laughs> well, it's so important. You know, I don't know if you know this, but I interned at Loose Groove. Oh, really? I was never accepted at Sub Pop either. In Fremont or where, where did you work? No, when it was on oh. Denny, like oh, by okay. Pizza. Mm -hmm. And like before Fremont and um, for the longest time, Stone didn't want to put those records on streaming and it killed me. Right. But uh, thankfully, after Sean Smith passed away, he ended yeah. up putting up the Brad, the Brad. I mean, I don't know if we'll ever see 14 Fathoms Deep again, but there's a wow. lot of good records. Yeah. Um, so I was going to ask you, it kind of blew me away because, um, again, I grew up around it and Easy Street and... I always was outspoken and said Sonic Boom was my favorite record store. And it felt like it was, you know, a rivalry. Uh, <laughs> I loved going to Fremont. I don't know if you remember, one of my really good friends, Christine, had the henna shop. So I would kind of oh, camp yeah. out there, get wow. some henna, and Amazing. then go shopping. Uh -huh. But what I couldn't believe, I had no idea that you started working with Matt at Easy Street. Yeah. And like, then you said you opened the record store, you opened Sonic Boom, it was Fremont, nobody was paying attention to it over there in Ballard, but Jason was still working at Easy Street on the weekends? <laughs> like, did Matt know that? Like, just yeah. tell me, or like, when did he find yeah, out? Yeah, this like, is funny. Did ever become so, a thing? So we decided to open the store, and we were like, it was, it was Jason's idea, and, and I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. Like, I mean, I say this in the book, but neither of us, like, we're like, we're going to open our own record store someday. Like, that wasn't our dream. I, I mean, Jason, maybe he was in radio then and just like a huge music guy. And I was always like, I want to work for a label or start a label and play in bands. Um, but I had, I mean, I, I knew a lot about stores from when I was an intern at Polygram because my job there was to like go to every store and put up posters and talk about sales numbers and all. So I picked up a lot then. But then at Easy Street, I learned a lot more. And uh, 
and so Jason was like, we should open a store. And we talked about it one night, and we were like, look, there's only one neighborhood. There's so many good record stores in Seattle, but this neighborhood, Fremont, doesn't have one and really should and really could. There's you know, cool people, the people who have money, and it's you know lots of restaurants and kind of a little downtown district. And so we're like, the only way we can do it is if we can do it there. We can't go, like, we don't want to open up on the same street as some other store. So, so we found a spot, this weird little house kind of off the beaten path. That house is $1,500 a month. And uh, for the main floor that, that we rented. And we kind of, I mean, we got a small loan from his mom and racked up credit cards. And it was like $30,000 to open, which seemed like a ton of money <laughs> in 1997. Yeah. We were two 25-year-old dudes. <laughs> and, uh, but we did it. And for like two and a half years, I mean, it was so, so tight in the beginning. I mean, everything was homemade. We had friends help build racks. We had friends come stick the sticker. I mean, it was really like this community effort. And we knew we weren't going to be able to pay ourselves very well. So Jason, I mean, we, as soon as we decided we were really going to do this, we told Matt, we're like, we're opening our own store. We're not stealing ideas or anything. It's going to be our own spot. It's going to be, you know, it's pretty far from West Seattle. It's not really yeah. a competitor in that way. Um, and, and he was cool. And I mean, wasn't like amazing, go do it. But he was like nice and supportive. And, and I mean, he and I are still great friends. I just did a book thing at easy street a few weeks ago, which was crazy. Um, and so somehow Jason still stayed working there two days a week. And then I, I didn't, I left, but I worked at American music, the like, you know, musical instrument store up Fremont Ave. And so, yeah, the schedule was we would each work five days a week at Sonic Boom and two days a week at our other job. And then somewhere we would take one. So we each got one day off every two weeks. So we'd work 13 days in a row somewhere and then take a day off. And we had this like overlapping schedule. But I mean, then Seattle was so cheap. I mean, we both lived in houses with roommates, paid like I'm guessing 350, maybe 375 dollars a month. <laughs> you know, some like amount like that. That, um, and and so having those jobs probably paid our rent. Yeah. Which made it so anything we made from Sonic Boom was. I mean, we were very good about everything we make goes back to the store because we need more stock. You know, we won't know till we're open what we don't have. Hopefully, people will ask us and. So we really didn't pay ourselves much. The neighborhood was so neighborhoody. We traded all the time. We traded promo CDs for meals and like, you know, it was just like this community. It was so much fun. That's so awesome. I just, I never worked in a record store. Thank God, because I would have just like turned over my paycheck. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, really, that's why I just got into radio for a free CD. <laughs> yeah. And that feeling, there's something really special about when you love a song, playing it for somebody and getting to do that for millions right. of people. Yeah, totally. Wow. But um, I always, I always kind of wished I had worked at a record store especially thinking of those like high fidelity moments like <laughs> we're gonna sell five copies of the beta band today yep. <laughs> all that classic snot record store snob stuff so fun it's so awesome and then okay i have a couple more questions about your family one um i thought it was really interesting in the book when you did the 23 and me and you started getting connected to different yeah. people in your family you really went on a journey i mean fascinating <laughs> that it landed the woman you found who potentially was part of the slave owners uh -huh. that owned your family that her uh -huh. name was Karen I know <laughs> poor Karen <laughs> poor Karen but she was lovely <laughs> she's great we're still in touch we email all the time she's amazing we still never but, met we've never actually even spoken it's all like Facebook Messenger and email that's great. I loved hearing those stories of how you defined your family. But I was curious, do you feel as close 
with cousins or uncles and aunts on your mother's side? Yeah, um, absolutely. It's just, it's, it's always so different because they've always existed. So mm. it's always been kind of taken for granted and been easy. It's like, oh yeah, that's my cousin or that's my third cousin. Or even when my mother finds a new one, which she still does all the time because her, my grandfather, her father had lots of siblings. So there are lots of cousins. Um, and I just met a new one on my mom's side a month ago who's a 20-year-old absolute like superstar world famous concert pianist wow. <laughs> who goes to Juilliard right now and just moved to New York so we had dinner with her but yeah it's incredible I mean it feels just as powerful as it does on my dad's side and it's still like what are we second third my grandfather's brother is your father like we don't totally know we don't look alike we don't act alike but like there's definitely an agreed upon connection I think that's the thing when it's like if there are two people that are like we're related let's go have dinner that's totally I'm totally open to it and it's great it's one of my favorite things but I've always I learned that from my mother because she's always been like that and I mean there are so many people on her side that are like that that are just great and some that I've known my whole life and some that I've only met a couple times that are always I consider family so uh, we were talking about rewinding the tape because you said something that really resonated with me like when you said I don't think about it because I don't have to think about it or I don't want to think about it. And mm -hmm. I'll be really vulnerable and honest that this book made me realize that I adopt that attitude when it comes to race. Oh. And like, don't think it had ever crossed my mind in my life what your cultural background was. Interesting. But yeah. maybe, you know, it's the privilege, it's the white privilege of you don't think about it because you don't have to think about it or you don't want to think about it. Mm -hmm. But um, you said something in there that was an aha moment for me when you talked about your friends going over dating profiles. Will you tell that oh, story? Because yeah. I was like, maybe guilty. Uh, right. <laughs> I just, yeah, this is when, have you, I mean, I got married four years ago. I've been with my wife for about six years now. And right before that, it was the first time I tried like using dating apps. I'd never done that. And I was like, wow, what a weird thing. How do you do this? And I was on, you know, at least signed up for all the different ones. And there was one, I forget which one, but it was, you could actually like filter by race. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you could, you could like tick boxes like yes or no. And it just felt so fucked up and gross and weird to me. And I, I just remember thinking like, but it's not, I think there are people, because I always hear people say things like, oh yeah, he, you know, he really likes black women or whatever, something like that. And that even that always, it's not even that it offends me, it's that it, it confuses me. It's like, how can you like or dislike an entire race of people? Aren't you just attracted for whatever reason to certain people, no matter what, like, even when people say like, oh, do you like redheads or something? It's like, what do you mean? Do, <laughs> I don't yeah. know, I have no where, idea where which one. I felt, where I felt, like I got caught was you were saying when friends were trying to set you oh, up. Oh, that's yeah, yeah. You would say yeah. somebody might say, "Oh, you should meet my friend Sally. She's an accountant and mm -hmm. lives on the east side." But if they said you should meet Christina, she's Asian. Mm -hmm. You know, they would point out the differentiation, yep. and I'm like. Wow, I've never totally. thought about it, but I may have done that. Yeah, I think most people have, but that's, yeah, I mean, what, what you're saying in a way is, at least for in my situation where most of my friends were white, white then being the default of who their friends were, so I say, yeah, you should meet Sally, she's great, she's an accountant. My assumption is Sally's white, because they didn't say Sally's race. 
you should meet whoever, Christina. Uh, she's Asian, really beautiful. It's like, oh, right, you had to point out her race because it's not white. That's, so it's, it's important to point out. And why is it important to point out? Is it, am I supposed to think something based on what you think I think Asian means? Like, it's, all, it's so loaded and confusing and weird to me. And I know everybody does it. But it, it's yeah. always just, like, made very little sense to me. Yeah, I had never thought about it. And, you know, when you were birthing this book, and clearly it was a journey about uh, the exploration of connecting with your father, did you know that so much of it was going to be about race and identity? Or did that just come pouring out? I knew that some was, but I didn't know that so much of it was. I think what I realized pretty quickly once it was starting to become a book was that race and identity is part of everything, at least in my brain. And I, I think if you look for it or if you want to find it, I think a lot of people, it's pretty easy to find. I mean, even situations like that, that is absolutely a situation where it comes up. Um, but what's interesting, what you say, because I didn't, my editor hadn't, of course, hadn't read the whole manuscript because it didn't exist. She read the proposal and read a couple chapters, and we talked a lot. And when I turned in the first draft, I remember her coming back. She's like, there's so much more race stuff in here than I thought. This is like, this is great. I really love it. But she was like, I was really surprised to see all this stuff, which surprised me. because So maybe I did think it was going to be in there. But yeah, I think, I mean, even like, there's this whole section that I wrote so much more than is in there. But when I was working at Sonic Boom, all the sort of little racial microaggressions that happened. And I, I list a few. And I mean, I started, I honestly remember writing, like, I remember thinking about it, thinking, like, is it something I need to talk about at Sonic Boom? Probably not. I can't think of anything. And I think I wrote the sentence, like, there weren't a lot of racial incidents when I worked at Sonic Boom. And then I thought of a couple, and I wrote them. And then I thought of a couple more, and I wrote about those. And then I deleted the first sentence, where, and then I just started writing tons of them. And they're all just little, you know, the mayor comes in and wants a picture with me, not with Jason, and that ends up in the campaign flyer. You know, the, just the people who look surprised when I tell them I'm the owner. Just, you know, not, again, not huge, crazy racist moments, but just things that happen every day that I kind of let roll over me. Yeah, I loved when you were saying uh, you were filling out the loan application, and um, was it Jason's from South Africa? So yeah, he's white and was born in South Africa. And and yeah, so he's like, let's, I think people have a problem with this, but whatever. <laughs> he said, let's, he's like, he'll tick the African-American box, I'll tick the white box. We're basically just reversing what we could do so that the data is the same. And, but his point was, I remember him saying, he's like, it's a totally fucked up question that we shouldn't have to answer, so let's just mess with it. I love it. You know, I um, tagged you uh, that one of my friends just got a position at Stanford. Um, oh, yeah, I saw that. The Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity. Oh, wow. Which, Amazing. like, come on. But what would you like people to take away from your book when it comes to race and ethnicity? It's hard because I, feel, I do have this constant fear that that some people will get from this book, like, you know, kind of, oh, screw you and your lucky life. Like, I've been lucky in that I've been able to navigate being a biracial kid with a Middle Eastern name and being in some weird situations and living in weird places and being on tour in bands and never having anything that bad happen to me. I've been, I think, maybe overly cautious and maybe avoided things or maybe everything would have been fine and I just made my life harder by being overly cautious. But either way, I think I've been lucky and there's always this little fear 
that that's going to be some people's takeaway, people who've had a harder time, maybe people who are in a similar situation but didn't live in as open places or weren't around as good people or something like that. So I certainly don't want <laughs> people to take that away, but I think, I think it's important or what, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a self-help book or a how-to book, but I think it's possible to really kind of build your life and make it positive even in the worst situations. I mean, on, on paper, my childhood was my white 22-year-old mother and me on welfare in Amherst, Massachusetts with an absent black father. I mean, that sounds like someone who ends up in jail by the time he's whatever, 15, and that's statistically might very well be true, but it was never even close to that. I mean, it was incredible, but I think, I mean, of course, a ton of this goes to my mother and credit to her, but like for putting us in the right places around the, pe the right people, even when we didn't have money, she always knew how to do that and to sort of surround us with positive nurturing people and places, and that's why things worked, and I think Again, it's not, not everyone can just do that, but she was able to, and I think that's really important to think about, whether it's with kids or for yourself, but like who you surround yourself with and how you can kind of generate positivity in your life is really, really important. Yeah, I say this in almost every single episode, I feel like, because it really resonates with me, but I have this friend, Deepika Chopra, who she says the definition of an optimist isn't someone running around with rose-colored glasses in the rain saying it's beautiful outside. Right. It's somebody that when they hit that wall, they figure out how to go around it. And I know growing up a woman working in music yeah. that I hit walls and then you just figure it out. You don't say stuck, but right. it feels like you've always done the same where you hit those challenges. Yeah. Instead of being miserable or frustrated or giving up, you just went around them. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I was so excited, like, I mean, I was worried I wouldn't be able to use the title because it's a lyric from my father's song, but it was totally fine. But, but more, I mean, of course, I love that song and I love that it's sort of a connection and a tribute to that. But more than anything, and I use the word you just used, but it's such an optimistic title to me. And that's really what I love about it. It's, I mean, my life and the sunshine. It's about the sunshine is sort of whatever, the positivity that, that definitely sometimes follows me, but also sometimes I follow or create. And it's, that's the sort of exchange and I love it. Yeah, well, I'm thankful for your dad because he created you <laughs> and inspired you to open up and share these stories and tell the book. Um, maybe the interview that we spoke the least about your dad, I hope that's okay. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> yeah, there are plenty <laughs> out there. <laughs> I, I thought it was so awesome when I was hitting you up to talk. I sent an email to your 4AD email and oh, you were yeah. like, hey, well, new email. I'm running all of beggars now. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. It's so, yeah, the timing was crazy. That all happened. I turned 50, announced the book. Both of those things obviously were planned and I knew were happening. But, um, but Matt, the old president of beggars, stepped down pretty quickly in January. And I didn't even know. And Martin Mills, who owns and runs beggars, um, invited me to have lunch with him. And he's like, Matt's stepping down. Will you step up? like, you know, next week. And this is all right at the same time. It was a really insane time in January, but a um, great one. Super easy question. Uh, what's your general take on the music business right now? I, I mean, I love it, but I'm in, it's so funny. Even, I mean, I'm in such a, still a specific sector of it. I mean, you know, beggars and all the labels are still so, we're pretty album focused. We're very 
music and artist focused, which seems like everyone should be, but which means like, I have friends ask me like, oh, so you guys just sit around and, like find bands on TikTok? Like, is that what you do now? And it's like, no, of course not. And we also didn't, I mean, there's always been a version of that that the major labels have done, which works and is great, but that's not who we are. We find artists that we like, that we want to work with for years and careers and albums and work with them and definitely never, don't ever have anything as big as some of those TikTok things, but also have, you know, bands like The National and Grimes and things that have had this like slow, steady ascent and that are lasting and important. And so I love it because we're still doing that and it's still working and it's still really exciting and really fun. And there's new stuff, you know, every few months. It's great. That's awesome. Well, I mean, I told you I got your book because I wanted to support and then I just knew how busy life was. I ended up getting the audio book too, and <laughs> I enjoyed it so much because I had this happen with the Debbie Harry book too. Oh. It was like we went on walks together. That's so cool. <laughs> Hearing your voice. Right. Your, well, especially yeah. if you know me, that must be weird, right? Yeah. No, it was, it was really awesome, yeah. and I really enjoyed it. So I recommend either to everybody. It was so great, and it was you know, so much more than I thought it was going to be. So again, thank you. congratulations and thanks, thanks so for much. answering all my selfish questions. Thank you for having <laughs> me. Yeah, let's connect more. There's so much more KGRG and Vendetta Red and all that to talk about. <laughs> all right. I appreciate you. Thank um, you, Julie. And I will hit you for a general catch up very soon. That sounds great. My heart is always full after talking to someone from home. It's hard to believe that this fall, I'll have lived in Los Angeles for 20 years. I still have my 206 cell phone and will always be from Seattle. Thanks as always for listening to the Idea Fountain and also for sharing episodes with friends and on social media. It really helps a lot. You can follow me at Julie Pilot or at the Idea Fountain on IG. Have a good day.